let's uh, let's turn in our Bibles this morning. Before we go to Matthew chapter 7, where we begin the final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, I want to encourage you to turn to 2 Samuel 12 to read along with me, and then we'll go over to Matthew 7. But if you have your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and scroll or turn to uh, 2 Samuel 12. It's not an odd choice. I think it's uh, a natural thing if we look at this to kind of see its connection to Matthew 7. Um, But bear with me as we look at this and and use this to kind of prepare our hearts for what we're going to hear from Jesus as he continues the Sermon on the Mount. King David, at this point of his life, has made some serious mistakes in the recent history. Um, This is the point of David's story where him being not satisfied with God's provision, not being in the place where he should be at that time, finds himself on the roof of his house and sees a woman there. And after he sees her, he lusted after her, seduced her being a married woman. She got pregnant with his child. And to avoid being found out in his adultery, he had her husband murdered on the front lines of battle. Not exactly what you would call a golden moment for David, and definitely a smear on his kingship. And here in chapter 12 of Second Samuel, Nathan the prophet, as many of you are familiar with the story, is going to approach King David and he's going to call him on his sin. He's going to convict him of what he's done. But the way that Nathan goes about this is by telling a parable. And what we find within this parable, I think, is a, a common reaction that we see, either in ourselves or in others, to being convicted of sin in a more educational way rather than a direct way. It'll get direct with Nathan very quickly, but the way that he opens David up to what he's done is through the following parable. And so let's pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and I'm just going to read the first handful of verses here. You can follow along with me. It says, so the Lord sent Nathan to David when he arrived. He said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food she would eat, and from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, you are the man. Can you imagine hearing that in your own circumstances? from a position that you have been in before, looking at other people and saying, how dare you? How could you? And having that judgmental attitude about yourself. I think it's interesting that our own guilt oftentimes can be the source of an overreaction. I remember experience when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I was on a missions trip. And uh, every time one of the guys would have a conversation with one of the young gals, he would really get upset, one of the leaders. He'd get really upset when one of the guys was talking to a, a girl, and, and he'd just, like, fly off the handle at him. I was about 15 years old. I remember, like, they just, they're just talking to each other. It's not that big of a deal. And it just felt off. He kept overreacting. 
Every time one of those guys would even have a conversation or, or look at one of the young gals, turns out he was in the midst of an affair. The guilt was overwhelming him. It was this massive overreaction. Do you not think that that's what was going on with David here? Lack of transparency with himself of what was going on in his own life was leading this guilt reaction against other people. He says the man who did this deserves to die. Sometimes our sin can make us overreact. Sometimes our sin can numb us, desensitize us to the touch of Christ as he attempts to reach our heart and address that brokenness. Sometimes the Lord brings us around in gentle ways, and sometimes he says very bluntly, you are that person. When it comes to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to be asked and tasked with a further application of the Sermon on the Mount. And the way that Jesus is going to do this is he's going to talk about judgment. He's going to talk about being people who judge. And he begins by addressing our critical attitude towards others, making clear that there's a distinguishable difference between discerning and condemning. There is a distinguishable difference between discerning and condemning. So let's read the text for this morning. As you turn to Matthew chapter 7 and we begin this final chapter in our series Jesus continues his teaching and says this in Matthew 7, 1. We'll read down through verse 5. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Let's pray. Lord, as we read your words, this is your word spoken to us. You spoke it to your disciples there in that beautiful setting around the Sea of Galilee. You draw us near to yourself, and you seek to give us wisdom, correction, encouragement. Lord, you intend to see our joy full because we find our satisfaction in who you are and in who you say that we are. And so, Lord, I pray that we would find our identity in you and that that would be, Lord, the focus of our time this morning, that we would understand what it is that you're speaking to us both individually and collectively as a church that we would address this very difficult passage with humility. Lord, with an openness to you, recognizing that you're not against us, that you are for us, that you love us, and that you're drawing us close to you. So, Lord, we intentionally draw near to you because we want you near to us. It's a good thing to be convicted. It's a good thing for you to show us, Lord, the sin in our lives because you haven't left us in this place. You have cleansed us of that sin. Lord, bring us to a, a place and a posture of open confession and repentance because it's in repentance that we find restoration. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in us. Continue to do it this morning through the power of this passage of your word. We ask it in your name. Amen. Matthew 7, 1, I don't know about you guys, in my experience, um, is probably the most often quoted verse by non-believers, at least to me. 
And I, and I say that very specifically. The most often quoted verse by non-believers to me. Um, because oftentimes when you talk to people about Scripture, they think of judgment. But what kind of judgment do they think of? I think it makes sense why a non-believer would think of Matthew 7.1. First of all, it's easy. And if you want to use a little King James, judge not lest ye be judged. You know, and it's, it just kind of rolls right off the tongue. Hey, don't judge me. The Bible says you shouldn't do that. You know, and it's interesting how often we hear people say that, but it, it makes sense because it appears to fit the accommodating spirit of our age. It appears to kind of fit that, that, that spirit of accommodation that sees all choices as valid and all values as equally noble. So like, you know, what's you do you mentality would definitely be the type of person who'd say, don't judge me. The Bible tells you not to do that. But the popularity of this verse among both non-believers and believers alike is found in a misunderstanding of its meaning. We need to understand what Jesus meant when he said, don't judge. Understanding the semantic range of the Greek word Jesus uses for judge is so vital. To judge can mean all of these things. It can mean to discern to judge judicially, to be judgmental, or to condemn. The, the last two, the latter two, connecting to each other. It can mean different things. You're like, well, how do we know what he meant? Context. You guys hear me say it all the time. Context, context, context. What is Jesus addressing in this section? The context of the verse must determine the precise shade of meaning. And, and this is one of the few times that I, I, I like to talk about really getting into the doctrine and the theology that, we, that I want to go deep into this because this is so misunderstood. This is so misunderstood, I believe, by not only the world, but by Christians. We know it cannot mean do not discern. We know that that's not the definition he's using here because in verse 6, which we'll get into next week, Jesus is going to allude to people as pigs or dogs. You're like, what? Yeah, he actually said it. I, I'm not making it up. He's going to refer to people as pigs or dogs, which means that there's a judgment of type happening in that context, discerning between those who receive the word or are unwilling to. And so clearly he's not saying not to use discernment. So that definition isn't being used here. Again, in verse 15 of this chapter, for another example, Jesus will warn against false prophets who approach in sheep's clothing, but are in fact wolves. He says that we're to judge between them. In other words, discern who this person is and what their intentions are. Again, discerning judgment being used. Jesus in John 7, 24, it'll be on the screen. He calls the crowd to account for misjudging him regarding healing on the Sabbath by saying this. Stop judging a judgment. Word appearances used. No. You judge according to righteous. Is Jesus confusing a different type of definition in context? For more examples of judging in the realm of discernment, the letters of Paul are full of discerning judgment of people and their motives. All throughout the letters of Paul, he says, look at this situation and act accordingly. That requires judgment in the discerning context. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. If you're taking notes, Galatians 1, verse 8. Philippians 3.2. That's 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. It's like the person who repeats their phone number. Galatians 1.8 and Philippians 3.2. And if you like John the Apostle as well, 1 John 4, 1. We know that Jesus isn't speaking in a judicial sense contextually either. Doesn't fit the context of what he's been saying thus far. So the context, the context dictates that he's speaking of being judgmental and or condemning. 
being a judgmental person or a condemning person when he says, do not judge. He's commanding his disciples to not be judgmental. Do not adopt a critical or condemning attitude. It's not discernment. It's a condemnation. Church, it's so important that we know how to differentiate between these things because we are called to be discerning in judgment, but not to condemn or be judgmental. It is so important that we are discerning in judgment, but not judgmental people or condemning people. Do you realize how hard it is to walk that balance? How many times we look at somebody and be like, clearly that's wrong. And other times we're like, I'll forget them. They're just, you know, and it turns into slander and gossip. It turns into a judgmental attitude. We've all crossed that line. We've all walked that. Paul speaks of this in Romans 14, verses 10 through 13. He says, but you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He's talking in that same context. Why are you condemning? You shouldn't be doing that. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Don't cause them to stumble. He says, don't judge one another in this way. Is he saying that we can't look at our brother or sister and say, that's sin. You shouldn't be doing that. Like, oh, Paul said not to judge me, judger. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about discerning and saying what things are. He's saying, don't condemn people for this. Instead, don't put stumbling blocks in front of them. Build them up. Rather than having a judgmental attitude towards others, decidedly determine to build people up instead of causing them to fall. Take note that you're not causing them to stumble and intentionally try to build them up. By the way, you can't build people up if they're using rotting wood. Does that make sense? You know, some people have this, they have the foundation right. They believe in Jesus. They have, they have the foundation. They have the cornerstone there, but they're using rotting wood. Anyone who's worked in construction be like, well, that's a mistake. Anyone who doesn't work in construction is probably like, that's a mistake. You shouldn't do that. You should use the fresh stuff. Stuff that's not crooked, stuff that's not out of whack. You guys, if we understand what Jesus is saying here and what Paul is encouraging us to do in the same breath, the following quote from Pastor Greg Boyd is really helpful. He says, you can't love and judge at the same time. It's impossible to ascribe unsurpassable worth to others when you're using others to ascribe worth to yourself. Let that soak in. And I'm going to read it again. You can't love and judge at the same time. Judgment and condemnation. Being judgmental. It's impossible to ascribe unsurpassable worth to others when you're using others to ascribe worth to yourself. How many of us are using others to ascribe worth to ourselves and thereby are committing that condemnation or that act of judgmentalism? I'm looking at other people. And I'm feeling good about who I am. What is that? Being judgmental. I'm supposed to look at Jesus. He's the definition of who I want to be. When my identity is tied to him, I don't condemn others. I reach out to them. I give them grace. I give them mercy because I don't consider myself to be more than I ought to. Discerning another person to be wrong is not the problem. 
Discerning what they're doing to be wrong is not the problem. That's why we talk about sin when we read through Scripture. It's why Jesus calls us on account of our sin. We don't leave that off to the side. I hope you guys know this. I don't, like, prepare a little sugar packet for you every single week. You come in here and just throw it out. Sugar for everybody. Sweet, 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 sweet. You're like, yeah, we know. You make us eat broccoli all the time. Good. Because <laughs> we need it. We need the good stuff. You guys realize that, like, <laughs> Logan, no, we do not. Yes, you do. So you, you understand that spiritually, though. Like, we need to be fed on the word of God, which means that we need all of it in context from Genesis to Revelation. We need the whole context of God. We need the whole word of God because he's going to convict us and then show us the path to redemption. Amen? And we need to first be aware of our sin before we become aware of how much we need him. Because if I'm not aware of my sin, I don't recognize how much I need the cross. And we need that. We need to see our sin. We need to be transparent with who we are and then turn to the only one who can save us from that sin. Amen? Jesus. So it's to this attitude of condemnation. It's to this posture of judgmentalism that begets this word from Jesus. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. And he continues in verse 2, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you'll be measured by the same measure you use. It's interesting because some scholars go back and forth on whether he's talking about the way other people will judge us or the way that God will. And I lean towards the direction of this is how God's going to deal with us because of the context from Matthew chapter 6. If you look at Matthew 6, verses 14 through 15, he says, For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. There's this posture and attitude of a heart that's submitted to God that begets his likeness, that begets his attitude. And that's why when we see ourselves not being true image bearers, it's supposed to call us to repentance, not rejection. It calls us back to him. We have to recognize that we've been forgiven and then we show forgiveness, not to earn God's forgiveness, but to prove that his forgiveness has taken root in our hearts and produced that same heart for others. Proof of what God has done in us produces a response. It produces a life change. D.A. Carson said it so well. A judgmental attitude excludes us from God's pardon for it betrays an unbroken spirit. A judgmental attitude excludes us from God's pardon for it betrays an unbroken spirit. In other words, if my spirit has been broken, I can discern using judgment in that way between right and wrong, but I don't condemn because I recognize that Jesus can save the most wretched of sinners. Because I recognize that he can redeem the worst of us. And indeed he has. We can't condemn. We can discern. So Jesus then gives us this example, and this is, I love this example. By the way, this is actually the first passage of scripture that I ever got to share in front of a large group. It was at Bible college, and I was asked to share five minutes on this section. Five minutes? Clearly they didn't know me. But five minutes on this first five-verse section in front of 700 of my peers. Yeah, no big deal. I bombed. It was horrible. But I'm sure the Lord used it for something. <laughs> It's just to teach me humility. That was enough. Jesus says in verse three, why do you look at the splinter 
in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. It just makes sense, doesn't it? It'd be a pretty ridiculous picture, and I think we should actually consider this, because Jesus gave it to us, of somebody walking up saying, "Uh, you got something in your eye, and they're clunking you in the forehead with this massive beam sticking out of their face. You're like, what? Why are you looking at me? Like, do you not notice that you have this massive issue? No, I'm just trying to help you. And they're thunking you with this, you know, this piece of wood. <laughs> Many pastors, because I, I have a, a group of pastors that I meet with regularly that convict me and speak truth and encourage me. Many pastors, including myself, will attest to hearing the following statement from time to time. Great message today. I don't know why I'm going like Kermit the Frog meets Gomer Pyle, but just go with it. So-and-so really needs to hear this one. (laughs) Everyone's like, I said that to Mike last week. No, but I I hear that all the time. Oh, great message. You know what? um, What's-his-face could really use to hear this. I think I'll uh, make sure they hear it. Now, hold on a second. Don't get me wrong. Maybe so-and-so does need to hear it. I'm not saying that's always a condemning attitude. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But do you know who needed to hear it the most? I did. And you did. It was for us. That's why Spurgeon said, if before you preach a sermon, preach it to yourself. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. He's like, no pastor should preach a sermon that he has not first preached to himself. If you're not convicted by the truth that you're sharing, don't share it. Don't speak it. Many pastors hear that, I think. But the one who needed to hear it the most was me. And maybe it is other people, but have we taken very careful look at ourselves before we share that with others? There is not one of us that has not or is not currently or will not in the near future struggle with pride. And what he's revealing is a pride struggle. That big beam in your eye and the the absolute blindness to see that it's out of whack for us to try and correct others' issues? That's a pride issue. Pride has blinded us to our current situation, and the more prideful we are, the more oblivious to just how glaring our issue is. You're like, I would never. (laughs) Yeah, you would. (laughs) And so have I. So have I. It's like being on the missions field when we would go down to Mexico and build houses and be like, you smell funny. I'm like, dude, we've been out here working for 10 hours. Everyone and everything smells funny. Like, we've been working in the sun for 10 hours. It's just rank. And to prove it to us, they'd stick us all in a trailer together and drive us like five miles back to the compound. We're all in the trailer like, <sighs> give anything for Vader's mask right about now. It has to filter something. But here's the thing, you guys. It's bad, I know. But like, think about this. We oftentimes will do that and be like, well, I don't smell anything. I smell fine. It's like, you are blind. You've got a wooden beam coming out of your armpits, right? It's just, (laughs) I used to have youth kids that were like, I'm drawing that and putting it on a shirt. If any of you are an artist, I will wear a a beam coming out of someone's armpit t-shirt. Thank you. 
This is what Paul says in Romans 12, 13. He says, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, I love this, think sensibly. In other words, that's not very sensible to think that you're better than you are. He says, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. In other words, be real with who you are. Be real with your own sin. Recognize it. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 17 through 18. So let the one who boasts do what? Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Don't boast in you. I shouldn't boast in me. Oh, yeah, I totally nailed that worship set. It was totally my own skill set. It's garbage. It's what God has done. It's his gifting. It's his ability. For it is not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. Isn't that what Jesus talked about all through chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount? Stop doing what you're doing publicly. Do it in secret. Let the Lord be the one who ratifies you. Let the Lord be the one who rewards you. Stop trying to get the reward for yourself. When Jesus calls attention to the plank in our eye, it is a call to self-awareness rather than self-righteousness. He is calling us to self-awareness, not self-righteousness. Be aware of your things, not so that you beat yourself down, so that you turn to him, so that you go to him with these things, and he will heal you. He will help you, and when he helps you, then the beam has been removed. Then the beam has been removed, and that's why he says, first take the beam of wood out of your eye. First. How many of us on this side of the coin don't want to speak to other people's issues because it's messy? Well, Jesus said, first take the beam out of your eye, but then he doesn't stop there. Then you will see clearly take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Notice that he doesn't leave that part of it out. We are to be part of this discernment-based judgment of each other's lives saying, you do need something removed from your life, but I can't do that from a position of hypocrisy. That's why when Jesus says hypocrite, we go, whoa, you know, that's a moment that causes us to step back and go, okay, have I dealt with my things? Have I dealt with my issues? Have I dealt with my pride? Because the person who is self-aware is a person who addresses the plank in the eye, but that's not where that person stops their work. Once addressing that plank, now we have to deal with our brother's speck. Now we have to help them, but only after we've dealt with our own things. Church, how are we doing in this process of walking each other through the removal of these issues in our lives? Not only dealing with our own things internally, but helping each other in that process. This is not a pastoral exclusive task. I'm not the splinter remover. I got enough beams on my own, right? I'm not the splinter remover. It's, it's part of what I do as a Christian, as a, as a person who's discipling. Do you know who the splinter removers are? All of you. How do I know that? Context. <laughs> He's talking to his disciples. That's us. That's all of us. We're all splinter removers, just like mom. Remember when mom used to show up with those tweezers and you ran like you'd never run before? Ow, I got a, you have a what? Nothing. 
at all. Because <laughs> mom never showed up with just the, the tweezers because mom's smart. She knows that you picked at it first and you broke it off inside the skin and now she has a needle. Is this just, it's, there's chuckles. This isn't just my experience, right? Mom shows up, she's like, let's get this splinter out. I'm like, extreme. Calm down. It's fine. My body will just dissolve it over the next five years. I'm not letting you touch me. You guys, nobody likes the vision of that. The person showing up, you know, with those little, those sound like tongs more than tweezers, but (laughs) like she's going to cook a steak. I don't know what you're getting at. You guys, we are all followers of Jesus. I pray in this room that we are. And as a follower of Jesus, you are a splinter remover, but you must be a plank remover first. You have to be someone who deals with the beam first. That's what this call is. Deal with that first, but then get about the business of restoring one another. Galatians 6 is a beautiful picture of this as Paul in the very first three verses of that chapter says this. Brothers and sisters, that's us. If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, by the way, the spiritual person is the one who has no beam. Restore such a person with a gentle spirit because beam removal makes you gentle. When we recognize our own sin, we are very gentle in how we approach other people's. If I'm being honest about it, watching out for yourselves, he continues so that you won't also be tempted. Carry one another's burdens in this way. You will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Don't you love how often when it's talking about us walking each other through sinful situations or through struggles, it's a call to humility in the person who wants to help the other person. It's a constant reminder that we need to be humble and that we need to be soft-hearted towards others. You guys, this is so vital for us. This is a template for what discipleship looks like. Humility and a soft-hearted approach to people who are struggling with sin just like we are. There's a humility that's, that's necessary. We're not perfect. We know that. If you don't know that, newsflash, you're not perfect. We have to deal with our own sin. But God doesn't call us to be the person who goes around telling everyone that they're going to hell because of their sin. He has called us to look at people and with a gentle heart, draw them to him. The reality of it is this, without Jesus, we are condemned. But that's not because I'm condemning them. That's because their sin is condemning them because God, who is righteous, demands perfection what we must do is introduce them to a perfect Savior who will give them his perfect righteousness for their filthy rags. Amen? That's the message of the gospel. And we shouldn't do it like a salesman. Boy, do I have a deal for you. Act now. But the truth of it is, you guys, that the world is in dire need of saving. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We have to allow Jesus to address our sin We need to be empowered by him to restore the wandering souls of this world back with gentleness, remembering that it's his kindness, according to Romans 2, that leads us to repentance. His kindness leads us to repentance. That's what drew us in. It's the heart of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He says, I'll give you rest. 
He says, come to me. I'm gentle and I'm lowly of heart. He said, you're going to find rest for your soul. That's how Jesus, that's his heart for us. It should be the heart of the church. I hope that you guys express that to each other as you face your sin, as you confront your sin. But I also hope that as part of your lives, as part of my life collectively, not only individually but collectively as a church, we see our calling to do that here in this community. That's why I love talking with people that are doing that, like Love, Inc., and being partnered with them because we have real tangible opportunities to reach out to people and to show them the softness of God, the heart of God for them, his grace for them, his longing for them. That should be coming out of us. But church, in order for us to be effective in helping with the ministry like that, I see it as providence that the Lord gave us this text to look at first this morning because I think he wants us to deal with our stuff first. He wants us to deal with sin in our own lives first before we really get into this ministry thing. And maybe you've been walking with the Lord a long time. That ought to mean you're much more aware of the sin issue. Very aware of sin's hold on the flesh. But you are free and no longer slaves to sin in Christ. Amen? You're free. Walk in that freedom humbly because you didn't earn it. It was him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, the challenge that you bring to us within it, and I thank you, God, for your heart for us and, and Jesus, that we don't read words of condemnation when we read um, the things that you taught. Lord, you didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but so that we might be saved. You came to lay your life down while we were still sinners. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have your heart for people. We would have your heart for not only each other, especially in the house of faith, Lord, especially amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, because we recognize that we are connected to each other as part of your body. But Lord, we would take that heart and we would take that mindset outwards, that we would seek to reach the wanderers and the lost. Lord, reveal our hearts to us. Show us the ways that we need to we need to confess. Show us the sins, Lord, that we've been holding and not letting go of. Oftentimes as a church, we talk about having closets in our house that we stuff all of the sin into and, and hope to keep you out of. It's just like a rot that's in the system. Lord, help us to open all the doors, to deal with the plank, to deal with the beam so that we can help our brothers and sisters with the splinter. Lord, I pray that we would be discerning, but not condemning. Lord, that we would be convicting, but not judgmental. Jesus, prevent us from usurping your authority from you, taking that position that's rightfully yours, and, and Jesus, rather just have your heart, your attitude, your mind. We thank you, Lord, for calling us to this. We ask that you would stir us as we worship and that you would lead us in this time. We pray in your name. Amen.